You are listening to an Irreverent Podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin, how are you? Here we are again. Here we are, and we're back on the screen with each other. We're no longer we're back in on the screen. person with one another. We we were so lucky. We got to travel and and be and record our last episode um, in person, in real life, sitting across the table from one another after spending a weekend together in McAllen, Texas. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was fun. Reynosa, Mexico, and it was great. So, but it's I mean, it's just as good to see you on camera. But I have to admit, it's much better to see you in person yeah you know those live podcasts there's there's a spirit and an energy to them that i really enjoy and luckily i get to go to north carolina at the end of this week to be with our good friend trip fuller and do a podcast with him for homebrewed so i'm super excited about that but super sad that you won't be there because when we did theology beer camp together that was a lot of fun it was so much fun yeah with a lot of bros and a lot of beer yes. but it was a lot of fun yes yes um it was yes a lot of bros but yes <laughs> um so it's it's tuesday we're recording on tuesday and um the the thing that I have been sitting with for the past couple days is, and it's related to some news that I heard earlier this morning as I was driving to a doctor's appointment, but I've, I've been having a lot of anxiety about not being financially secure and how capitalism is a scam and how we keep um, – working our asses off for not much in return. And our good friend Clinton Wright posted a picture um, maybe last week or the week before that talked about the median rent in Raleigh, North Carolina is something like $1,500. And so untenable. If some, if someone works 40 hours a week for, for $7 and 45 cents, that only amounts to about $1,100 a month. And so people are unable to afford rent. And and this has got me thinking about the wealth tax and how billionaires don't want to be taxed and how people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, pays they, they pay themselves a smaller amount so that they're not pa- taxed on anything. And so while I'm paying an enormous amount of taxes, they aren't paying very much tax. They are financially secure into the future. People like me are not financially secure. And so I'm really wondering how do we, 
how do we make do with what we've got and how do we how do we live in a world that is untenable that is ultimately a scam right that's what i've been sitting with well and it's i mean it's a hairball right i mean it's so tangled and so yeah. interwoven and there are no there's no straight line through yeah um it is affected on one side by capitalism um it's affected at another point by supremacy culture because these you know billionaires are um white and male and privilege has followed them all of the days of their lives and 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 not only would they be giving up uh portions of their income they would be giving up portions of the privilege that they have by not giving up portions of their income um it's affected by our political system which is was built on the back of of brown people and black people and and really has zero desire to manifest itself in a way that is whole and and complete for all of us right um you know and then and then you've got you know the the act- the people actually playing the game the lobbyists the you know the people that are actually making it so I mean, I have to actually wonder if if we were to go to Bezos and Elon Musk and and all of these men and say to them, um, if the tax code were to change and you were to have to pay your fair share, would you be okay with that if it meant solving these fill in the blank eight or 10 existential crises that we're facing in the US? I believe um, maybe it's Pollyanna-ish of me, but I believe that most of them would say yes. I actually, I actually would be willing to pay, to pay my fair share. Yeah. Um, if I felt as if my tax money were going to mitigate harm and going to, you know, be a part of a solution and not to propping up a system that's um, incredibly, you know, full of historical racism and 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 all the other isms. Yeah, you know, but are they even thinking about harm reduction? No. Right. They're not, but I think if you present it to them in that way, I mean, who knows? I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, maybe it's Pollyanna-ish, Pollyanna-ish of me, but I just, um, I have to wonder, uh, like, what the real barrier to a flattened capitalistic system is. I mean, you yeah. know, we watched Andrew Yang make it pretty far into our last um, presidential election cycle uh, with the with the one of the his main platforms being a, a minimum income uh, for every American, regardless mm-hmm. of, of who you are, and um, having the government be able to fuel that. I don't I'm trying to figure out what the barriers to entry are for these lobbyists and for these people who are really against what it is we say we are trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, you know, and I also, as you know, you and I both say all the time, like politics isn't going to save us. Right. Like we could, we could try to fix all the things all the time and we could literally come up with a solution for all of these things that are paining us and that are, you know, kind of making us full of anxiety and making us, um, frustrated and angry. And yet in the grand scheme of things, that's not what's going to save us from ourselves. Our relationality, our ability to be with one another, our ability to be in community is going to be the thing that, that saves us. Yeah. You know, we're, we, we are both entrenched in 
a history of being in the church. We they we've been disinvited from most churches because of our politics and theologies. But true story. But churches, um, th- they are more invested in right belief or orth- orthodoxy versus right relationship or right practice, which is orthopraxis. And I'm very excited about today's episode because the thing that I've been meditating on the most is that justice is a way of life. And in our guest's email, her email signature is a quote from Soren Kierkegaard, who is a favorite philosopher of mine in, in my existential days in college. And the quote is, um, there, there, are, there are many opportunities in the world for love. I think I got that right. It's close. And I'm very excited that who I believe is the right reverend, Dr. Carrie Jackson, I'm very excited that she's joining us today. Welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Carrie, we are so happy that you're here. I am so delighted to be with you. So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit, um, all of us around, you know, we're, we're all in this justice work in a variety of ways. And I have spent most of my life in higher education, earning three little letters behind my name, which took me out of the justice work for some time because I put all my eggs in the academia basket, thinking that I'd be a professor and that I'd sit in an office by myself reading and writing and maybe teaching a class here and there. And now I find myself in the world doing theology in the world, not theology in the academy or theology of the academy. And so I've been thinking a lot about how can I live my life in the way of justice making and you are someone who um, has done that very well. And I'd love to hear some of your story and, and Anna too, your story about how can we live this life of justice? How can we, how can we be in right relationship with self and other? How can we really privilege orthopraxy and how have you done that Carrie in, in all your work? So justice is a way of life. When you said those words, something just uh, resonated in me, mind, body, and spirit. Yeah. Because that is so much how I seek to live my life. And I've been reflecting a lot lately on the issue of justice as an urgent way of life. Mm. Mm. And, and so I want to talk a, a little about that. But how did so much of this start for me was really having grown up in the Pentecostal church where so much of the focus was on living holiness as a way of life mm-hmm. in right. order to go to heaven. And for a good while, I was deeply entrenched in that as my way of life and was often fraught with the sense I'm not doing it good enough and how much 
is 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 the right way in order for me to get to heaven. And uh, thank you for referencing Kierkegaard because Kierkegaard asked me the question, and I feel like he asked it to me <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to carry. Um, why do you serve God? Do you serve God to avoid going to hell? And in my good Pentecostal self as a young college student, I said, of course, that's why I serve God to, to avoid going to hell. And something grabbed my spirit mm. and said, is that what you think about why God wants you to be in service and why God wants you to be in relationship with God. And so what I did as a young person, I I had my own Jonah in the belly of the great fish experience. And for about three days, I kept meditating on that. I said, God, why do you want me to be in relationship with you? Why do you want me to serve you? And at the end of my three days, I came out with this. I said, I don't know if there's a hell or not. Mm. But I choose to serve God because of love. Mm. And that shaped the trajectory of my life from from that point on as a a young college student at, at Oberlin in Ohio. And what that really directed me to was everything I do for it to be about love, everything. And so justice, as I I think about that, is really at its core is how we put love in action. That's the praxis. You know, I can say till I'm purple or blue and, you know, I'm a dark skinned black person. That would be a little hard, right? But I, I can say that. I love people. I can say I love God. But if it's not showing up in the way of my life, then it is, what did Paul say? It, it's it's tinkling cymbal and, and sounding brass. Yeah. I love that you have um, done the work of the orthopraxy over the worth of orthodoxy to really kind of identify how your praxis is going to move its way into the world and how it's going to, to actually show up um, on its feet with its hands, getting everything dirty in, in the work of the world. I'm curious if I can go back to a statement you made a few moments ago about the urgency of love and the urgency of justice. Um, what is it right now that you are wrestling with from an urgency standpoint? What is like, what is, what is really kind of, um, you know, piercing and and breaking your heart into pieces at this moment. That's kind of asking of you to be more urgent in, in the work. So many of our churches that, regard themselves as justice-seeking churches. There is an intellectual understanding of justice, Mm -hmm. 
there is a commitment, but commitment is not the same thing as if I don't do this. So much of what I love and value and what holds me together in my being, the commitment in its ways that we live it out, most of us, does not go to the existential. Mm-hmm. And, and and it is the case. I, I have had wonderful conversations with a number of white justice-seeking clergy over the past year and a half who have said to me, I was surprised to learn how much injustice many people of color are still experiencing. I thought I knew, Mm. but things are even more urgent in people's lives than I, I thought I knew. And I've heard people, white clergy, justice seeking clergy, justice committed clergy, really lamenting how much they did not know. So when you ask that question, what pains me most is how much from our infancy, most of us have been lulled not to see what is happening in the lives of other people. Mm. And And so while we might understand justice as an important value, having it as a way of life is not the same thing as having it as a value. You know, so I value it. But when it is my lifeblood, when I fully understand, you know, I, I love songs in the church like Make Us One, Lord. When I understand that we are one, mm-hmm. I don't have to pray, God, make us one. But when I fully understand we are one, then what is happening for people at the border, what is happening for people at the election ballot, what is happening for people when they seek to have abortion care, what, on and on and on and on and on. I don't have to know in my body what those other experiences are like because I know that we are one and whatever happens to the other, whatever happens to the least of these, it is happening to all of us. And, And it pains my absolute soul that Mutual responsibility is not something that we are really having as part of the milk that we are raising our children on, including in the church. Yeah. You know, uh, my partner, when we first started dating, she was the first white woman that I dated in several years because I just was... I was tired of dealing with whiteness and intimacy in relationship before I understood that my call and vocation as a white passing Latinx was to work with a dominant culture. But my, my partner, when we first started dating, I was, I was leveraging a critique 
about um, how separate we are. Yeah. And Aaron said to me, we are not separate. <laughs> and it and it recalled for me stuff that I had read from Gloria Anzadua years ago about the radical in- interconnectedness of all things. And I had forgotten that. I had, I had become, you know, my mind had become so colonized by the rhetoric of separateness. And I had forgotten that liberation really is about this oneness that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And it's in the oneness when we really not just understand it intellectually, right. but get it at a heart level, then what is happening in the lives of those individuals you were speaking about in the, the first part of the podcast, people who do not make enough money mm-hmm. for affordable housing, for quality housing. Right. There's an urgency about that. Yeah. yeah. When, when I understand we are one. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw, I, I, I have a sense that maybe you are also a James Baldwin fan. Um, and so I want to share a quote uh, okay. for us all to reflect on. I, I saw this yesterday and I think it, it resonates with what you're talking about, Carrie. And, and James Baldwin wrote this or maybe said this uh, somewhere and someone wrote it down. To be with God is to be involved with some enormous, overwhelming desire and joy. I conceive of my own life as a journey towards something I do not understand, which in the going toward makes me better. I conceive of God, in fact, as a means of liberation. Mm. That oneness mm. that we don't understand. I mean, I feel like, Anna, you were working for that in your church, the oneness, particularly for sexually marginalized and gender minoritized bodies. And, and the United Methodist Church said, nope. No, in fact, that we don't we don't want that kind of God. Right. We we don't want we don't want that kind of God. We don't want the kind of God that gives permission to those who we don't believe permission should be granted. Right. right. Um, yeah, and I love that Baldwin quote because I think it not only does it speak to the oneness, it speaks to the expansive, interconnected, embodied kind of ruha breath of what of what god is and um can be in our very midst and so god is not only in the liberation um god is in the the lament yeah and god is not only in the urgency but god is in the paradox of prioritization (laughs) and 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 so how do we how do we harness this that this overwhelming everythingness Mm -hmm. of a god and a spirit who is pulling us towards liberative community in a way that both 
forces us to recognize the urgency and also allows us to step back and simply be in awe of the possibility that we have to actually change the world for all of us around it. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I'm like, everything feels paradoxical for me in, in with quotes like that from Baldwin, right? Yeah. Like it, it makes me it, like, I feel like I'm like dancing the, the, like a, a Mexican like tango, like my shoulders yeah. are like forwards and backwards. Yeah. And I'm like, am I, am I urgent or am I in awe? Am I, am I, you know, liberating or am I, you know, is it, is it, the paradox of the now and the, and the not yet. Like I, like it feels like a very beautiful dance to me. And also like, I want the dance to stop and I want us to get shit done. Like, so how, how do we do all both those things and all of those things at the same time? I mean, Carrie, that's been a lot of your work of advocating for liberation and getting your hands dirty, which we talk a lot about here on the activist theology podcast and in the collaborative project helping people get their hands dirty and uh we talked a little bit about the texas abortion shenanigans that that were happening but that's a real urgent need for bodies with uteruses not just women but trans people too i just had my annual exam with my trans care health provider Mm -hmm. um and and i'm wondering because that's such an urgent need and, and, and many people with uteruses, uh, a lot of women of color, in fact, are fleeing Texas for care mm-hmm. because it's such an urgent need. And there are some places where you have to wait a month after your first appointment um, to receive the proper care um, according to the organizational guidelines. But I'm wondering maybe could we, could we use, I think it's SB8. <clears throat> could yes. we use could we use SB8 as a case study on the what is urgent and pressing and how do we live this life of justice in the face of such supremacy? So justice is a way of life. Right now in Texas abortion care staff are having to turn away individuals who are trapped in a system that is designed not only to control their bodies, but a system of American capitalism that is designed to keep them poor or if they're not poor to help usher them into poverty, uh, a system that is designed to ensure that not all people can have access to quality health care, a system that calls socialism a bad word. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the staff who are not trained to be pastors, who are not trained to, to be helping professionals in, in that, that sense that many within the church would, would regard. Right. They are doing ministry. Yeah. Because justice is a way of life. 
Now, when someone goes through a picket line and goes through all kinds of obscene language and pictures every day to go to work, Mm. and then they have to deal while they're at work with people who can't bring a support person with them because of COVID. Right. So they're coming in and they're getting news sometimes. Beloved, you are too far along in your pregnancy for us to be able to help you. Yeah. Those are the kinds of messages right now. People across the U.S., who are doing justice as a way of life. They're having to handle those kinds of, bring those messages and handle the pain of people, knowing that what legislators are doing impacts people for their lifetimes. Right. It is not a moment. It is, and and so the urgency is, How do we put in office legislators who give a damn about the quality of people's lives? And and you were talking earlier about this anti-tax sentiment. I, I said earlier, we do not have as part of our culture a sense of mutual responsibility. And so... Anna, when you were asking the question, am am I being a a bit Pollyanna? I I think you are. I don't think there is an interest in harm reduction regarding other people's lives because there's not a sense of mutual responsibility. There's not a sense of how somebody else's life impacts your life because that oneness that that we've been talking about, that, that really isn't there. And I'm pained as an ordained clergy person and an ethicist, I'm pained by how we put the theological veneer on whatever issue. Right. And that justifies bad. Right. I don't care what veneer you put on something. If it's hateful and if it's harmful and if it is immoral to the quality of people's lives, going forward, that that is not of God. That's just a theological veneer. And we need to call it that. Yeah. Yeah. As as the kids say, bad theology kills. Bad theology kills. Yeah. So, Carrie, how are you spending your days these days? Uh, I know that you I know that you launched a course and um you had a book maybe that was recently um, published, I think, or, or Dar- Darren said something about that. So how are you spending your days uh, in these urgent times? Well, I am celebrating, number one, that I'm going to be 65 next month. I come on, it. come on. I am so crazy excited about it. I thought turning 21 was awesome. This turning 65 is a whole nother level of liberation for me. Yeah, it it really is. And, And I love the clarity that I have in this era of my life. Younger years, I was caught in 
trying to prove myself. And so often that had me participating in perpetuating the system of capitalism Mm. and feeling myself bound by it. Mm. And, and, And what this era has really ushered in for me is one, I trust God to direct me in what I need to do for my financial well-being. It is very important to me as I'm transitioning. I've spent lots of years as an employee. I've also spent years as a self-employed person, and I've toggled between the two. None of those, neither of those, really enables one, and especially if you're a woman, and especially if you're a person of color, especially if if you are uh, an LGBTQ person, it can often limit your ability to be able to invest in the kinds of changes you want to see in the world. Right. So I'm really doing, I'm transitioning from employee. I'm going to be doing that part-time so that I can focus more of, more of my time on the things that are so important to me. Now, my work as an employee is with Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. I'm doing a lot of work that I feel I know in my soul is urgent. And I understand, you know, as as a person of color, and, and not only a person of color, but as a person who is black and in my DNA is the, you know, the epigenetics of, black slave women whose bellies were placed in a hole in the ground when they were pregnant. So if, if the overseer, the, the, the owner wanted to beat the woman, they could beat her on her back and protect her belly, which was their property. Also, I understand in this era, there's so much of that happening for folks in lots of ways that your belly, if, if you will, and that can not only be a, a person who is pregnant or who has the uh, possibility of being pregnant, but so much of who your essence put that in the hollow of a ground and still beat you on your back. Yeah. And so I'm really seeking to help people create ways in their own lives to heal from the stripes they've had on their backs, whether it was through sexual trauma. And I I have a program that I launched this year that's called Taking Back My Life. Yeah. I'm so excited about that. And we will be doing more of that. Um, I know in from my own life, my own experience, the kinds of lifelong impacts somebody else's actions have on on your not just your body but have on you in your your mind and and your soul and and so it's passion for me to help people heal from the stripes they've had on their backs that have come in a, in a variety of ways it's really important for me to say to folks you have the right to call out religious people when that veneer of theologizing is there when it has wounded you on your back so i know there's also a lot of people who have experienced spiritual wounding mm-hmm. yeah spiritual abuse 
and how to help people heal from that and reclaim. You can have a connection with spirit that is valid, that is valuable for your life, that is life-giving for you. It doesn't have to be in the frame of how somebody told you it was supposed to be. And, and you know, my doctoral dissertation, I focused on power dynamics and mm-hmm. really looking at how through preaching and other contexts, we have been promoting a method and a frame about power that leaves most people believing they don't have the right to power for their own lives. No no agency. No, right. You don't have the right to it. I'll tell you what you're supposed to be thinking and feeling. And that's why, you know, going back to Kierkegaard, that whole notion of do I really have the right to re-examine what I was taught about heaven and hell and what I got to do in order to go? Because all of that keeps people spinning around in a way that robs them of their agency. And it is my goal. I used to say to my uh, congregants when I was a, a local church pastor, I want to preach myself out of a job. Mm. Because I want you to know your own power, your own agency, your own authority, and for you to live in it. That is something that is so important to me. And so I'm doing that in a variety of ways as, as I'm transitioning um, from p- full-time employee. I really want to uh, have more time for my writing, for my teaching, my preaching, my coaching. I, I see myself really as a spiritual midwife. And and by that, I mean helping people to claim their own spiritual power. Mm. And and that's that is so important to me. I I um I have long been inspired by you. I, I've never said that to you. Um the pinnacle of that inspiration was when you preached at uh, Katie Zay's ordination service. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw for myself uh, the activist scholar, because like me, you're an activist scholar. You're doing work in the public square for the common good of all humanity. And I saw there before my eyes someone who was trying to do what I feel called to do which is create more love, more capacity for people to be fully human. And um, your work is inspiring, not just for me, but for many others, including Darren Jackson, who reached out to us and said, Carrie is doing activist theology. You've got to have her on the podcast. And we said, yes. Um, Thank you. How, how can how can we help our listeners? And we have a wide variety of listeners. Um, uh, we have a global audience, so the, the issues are different in, in depending on the context. But how can, we, how can we help our listeners get their hands dirty with the urgent needs of the world? Because I, I was sharing with Anna earlier, um, my anxiety has been accelerated um, I'm going to go back on my antidepressant to kind of help with the existential anxiety that I'm <laughs> suffering from. 
but there's also this anxiety of, man, the world is on fire. Is there going to be financial security? Am I going to be able to pay my rent? Um, you know, it's just, there's so much that people are living with. Yes. And, and I am living with that as well. I'm, I'm not immune to that anxiety that people are suffering with on a global scale, but how can we help our listeners get their hands dirty and maybe also take care of themselves while they get their hands dirty? Because we often don't talk about the care of the soul. Yes. Right. And, and we have to hold both of those together. And I feel like your work as a spiritual midwife is doing both of that, helping folks claim their agency and also take care of themselves. So how, how can we help our listeners do the both and. And if I may, can I can I add one more layer to that question, Carrie? Yes. Um, so often our listeners will will say to me, like, how how do I decide what's most important? How do I decide whether my heart and my money should be going to the border? should be going to local politics, should be going to homeless outreach, should be going to reproductive rights, should be going to queer, um, you know, conversations about queer equity. Like everything feels urgent (laughs) because everything is urgent. And I think if I could just fold in to that question, uh, clarifying your own Yes. Like, how do you not only midwife yourself in or, you know, or or allow yourself to be midwifed into the work? Uh But how do you also just allow yourself to hear the call in a way that allows you to know where your where your urgency and, and your feeling towards liberation is best placed? I so appreciate what both of you are saying. I am now leading a program I developed that's called Expanding Life in Loss. Mm. The, this comes from a program I developed many years ago in the aftermath of the World Trade Center and other key places in the U.S. being destroyed, attacked um, on 9-11-2001. There was such intense grieving in New York City at the time. And I saw that not only were we filled with anxiety, but we were also filled with a deep grieving that we didn't know how to help ourselves out of and filled with a sense of urgency because another set of issues seemed to emerge even more from from that. And there was this anxiety because many of us knew that what led to or what contributed to the attack on 9-11 really had to do with how U.S. the U.S. government was relating with other governments and other peoples around the world and that there was not truth telling about that. Mm -hmm. 
So fast forward to this year. I'm leading this expanding life in loss because over these 20 years, what I have come to understand is the opportunities for us to learn and grow are like that that happen post a volcano. There is a richness in the volcanic ash that enables that soil to produce foliage that is bigger than anything you you see. And if you've been on the big island in Hawaii with all of the active volcanoes, the plant life is so amazing because of the volcanic ash and what has been rich in it. If we can understand this moment offers for us, it's no guarantee, of course, but it offers for us something richer than we've been ready for before. Just to know that enables us to have more of the stillness that you talked about, Anna, because the discerning what's the thing for me requires a certain stillness. The economic system that we have in this country is designed to keep people rushing and running and feeling anxious so we have less ability to discern what is the thing I need to do? What's the thing we need to do? It keeps us running in such ways we don't see the interconnections of all of the things. So if I'm working with immigration or if I'm working with reproductive justice or if I'm working with prison reform or environmental, on and on and on, I am, what I'm doing is contributing to the whole. Because it is all interconnected. And so it's important. What is the work that feeds your soul in this moment? Because it might be something else in another five years. It might be something else in another 10 years. But it is all interconnected. But I am convinced if we function in a way that I used to talk about a lot when I was a a parish minister, parish congregational, you know, whatever you call it. I used to talk about breathe in and breathe out. Justice for me is one of those things. I've got to breathe in the care of my own soul. I've got to breathe in self-compassion. I've got to breathe, breathe in some stillness and quiet for my life. And as I do, I'm able more effectively to breathe out Mm. in a way that is transformative for our society. Still understanding we're all one. So if I'm toe down and broke up and whatnot, I'm limited in my ability to help transform in the world as as I see that urgent need because self-care has got to be urgent as well. I love that. I mean, that's, that's a word right there. That's, that's, that's a word right there. Um, Dr. Jackson, thank you. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you for 
um, not only the um, the words that you have offered to our listeners, but also for your very being. I I hope. I, I mean, I feel like you have poured passion um, into me over this la- over these last forty five minutes, and I'm I'm grateful for um, the way that you've offered that gift um, to me personally. I'm I'm really I'm really so moved. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are uh, really thrilled, friends, that um, Carrie Jackson made time to be with us today on the Activist Theology Podcast. We um, want to remind you that there are many ways for you to get your hands dirty and get involved in this work. Um, Do be sure to visit uh, atporch.com, which is where Activist Theology has launched its brand new app. Um, If you are interested in engaging with others who are trying to figure out what their work is or how they can manifest liberation in their daily lives in the community in which they live, join us at atporch.com so that you can be a part of those conversations. Um, Follow us on all of the socials. Reach out to us. Let us know um, what in this episode resonated most with you. And we are, we are honored to, to hear those stories and to have you send those thoughts our way. And just one more thing. If, if you're a white bodied person interested in unraveling from your whiteness, our curator of embodiment and somatics will be hosting the third cohort of this class starting in February. So be sure to look for signs and symbols in your email on social media about that next cohort. Yes. Dr. Robin, this has been one for the books. It's time to get free, y'all. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.